Welcome to Neighbor to Neighbor, a podcast focused on highlighting extraordinary individuals and organizations making an impact in our community. Neighbor to Neighbor is produced by WeQ, a not-for-profit cooperative credit union based in Bellingham, Washington. Go to the local grocery store and you're likely to see a tiny butterfly label on many food products. This label is that of the non-GMO project. What most people don't realize is that this nonprofit is based in Bellingham and is a member of WeQ. My name is Keith Mater, and on this episode of Neighbor to Neighbor, I speak with Hans Eisenbeis of the Non-GMO Project. Hans, can you just start off by introducing yourself and telling a little bit about the Non-GMO Project? Sure. Yeah, I'm Hans Eisenbeis. I'm the director of mission and messaging at the Non-GMO Project um, based here in Bellingham. And we, you might, your listeners might know us best as the folks who put the little butterfly on a lot of your favorite foods to show that um, the ingredients in that that, uh, product are sourced non-GMO. What GMO stands for is genetically modified organism. And in the 80s and 90s, a couple of big uh, biotech companies, the one that is gonna be most familiar to most people is Monsanto. Um, they had, uh, Monsanto and DuPont were companies that actually emerged post-World War II. Um, uh, they were looking for a use for all the chemicals that were used during World War II. And a lot of them were um, defoliants, they were herbicides, they basically would kill anything that you sprayed them on. And they were looking for farming applications, you know, turn swords into plowshares, I suppose, is one way of looking at it. And um, so in the mid 20th century, um, they began you know, repurposing a lot of these toxic chemicals uh, for use in agriculture. And um, so that, you know, for several decades, um, they sold you know, a commercial product called Roundup, but you can still buy it uh, at your lawn store, basically a weed killer. It'll kill anything that you spray on it. But they had this bright idea in the 80s or the 90s to net, uh, genetically modify certain crops to be able to withstand um, the spraying of those toxic herbicides in particular. And even beyond that, they, they figured out a way to genetically modify um, row crops that would actually produce their own toxins and, and produce their own pesticides, as it were. So, And these really hit the largest commodity crops. We're talking about soy. We're talking about corn. Uh, we're talking about canola, um, sugar beets. A lot of people don't realize that sugar beets um, actually produce about 90% of the sugar that goes into the American diet. And as we all know, there's a lot of sugar in the American diet. And 90, more than 90% of sugar beets are now um, genetically modified along the same lines. So these crops are just generally created in order to be able to withstand and survive repeated sprayings of highly toxic herbicides. And um, by the time we got into the early 2000s, there was increasing awareness and concern about uh, GMO farming practices. And more important than that, um, consumers got concerned. They would start showing up at places like our our beloved local community co-op, and they would ask staff, you know, I really, I understand that GMOs are a big issue in our food supply, and I really want to avoid them. So um, how, how can you help me, you know, choose groceries that might not contain GMOs. And, you know, in the early 2000s, they didn't really even have an option. And um, the USDA um, 
estimated at that time that probably about 80% of all processed foods in particular probably contain GMOs. So think about how common corn is as, as an ingredient, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or it might be cornstarch. Think of how common soy might be in a lot of our products and sugar, as I say. So about eight out of every 10 groceries in a typical grocery store um, probably contain GMOs or GMO derivatives. And that was actually by the time we got into the 90s and 2000s. So um, in the mid-2000, about 2005, 2006, there was a, an increasing movement across the country, especially at the state level, um, to require labeling of products that contain GMOs. Two things really came out of that movement, and this movement happened at the state level in California, in Maine, Vermont, a handful of other states where activists who were really concerned about GMOs wanted their state legislatures to pass labeling laws. Um, and at, at eventually the federal government got involved because a lot of the larger food companies were really concerned that they were going to have to create different packages for different states um, for, you know, for products with a national footprint. So the federal government stepped in and eventually passed a law that was called um, the National Biofoods Disclosure Standard. And, um, and that actually just went into full effect as a law this past January. And it, it's a law that does require disclosure of certain GMOs in certain foods, but it doesn't cover all GMOs. Um, so that's a concern we have about that law, but that is one um, moderately good thing that came out of that movement. The other really good thing, from my perspective, speaking selfishly, that came out of that was um, the Non-GMO Project was established in 2007 with the idea that if the federal government or state governments aren't going to label foods that have GMOs in it, why don't we create a program to actually label foods that are non-GMO and, and that's easier said than done. We had to write a standard and we had to look at, basically what happens is we ask companies that want to get verified non-GMO um, to show us their books. You know, it's their naked moment to be like, okay, this is everything that goes into this product. We look at it and if it includes high-risk ingredients, what we call high-risk ingredients, soy or corn or canola, um, there's a handful of others, then we actually will require testing too to make sure um, that they're compliant if they want that non-GMO status. So 2007 was when we launched, and it's been just really steady growth since then. Um, today, there's about 100,000 products that carry the non-GMO butterfly, um, and uh, sale of those products has, has really grown strong. It's about equal to organic, so you look at or sale of organic products, and that's uh, about $50 billion a year worth of, of groceries that are bought that are organic and, um, and non-GMO is right there along with it. Um, so non-GMO project verified products selling to the tune of about $50 billion, $50 billion worth. That sounds a lot like a lot, and you can definitely see the butterfly in every grocery store that you go into in various aisles. But it's still only about 10% of all groceries. So we have, uh, you know, our mission ultimately is to uh, make a majority of grocery products that, that, you know, that we're all buying and, and preparing and putting in front of our families at the dinner table. We'd like to see, you know, more than 50%, 60%. Eventually, you know, if I um, work hard, I'll work myself out of a job if we, if we no longer see GMOs at all in, in our food systems. 
One thing that's really changed, though, in the last couple of years is that um, the industry that creates GMOs is getting more and more sophisticated. And they are, um, there's all kinds of new GMOs that are being introduced into the marketplace. Um, there's a little something called synthetic biology that's um, uh, really impacting every aisle at the grocery store. And this is, by synthetic biology, we mean um, genetically engineered microbes. So take yeast, for example. We're going to genetically engineer it to express a nutrient, say vitamin A, or a flavor, say vanilla, or a colorant. Like this is uh, a, a natural red dye that we created with a genetically engineered microbe. And that's worrying to us because it, it is, it's entering uh, the grocery store in a big way. These products aren't labeling, they're not identifying themselves as um, containing GMOs. They're not really regulated by the government and, and they aren't being tested. And so that's, that's the, the next horizon for what we're worried about and what we're trying to educate people about. Man, you're great at telling the story of what your organization is all about. I do want to step back for a moment. Going back to the reason why GMOs were created in the first place, you mentioned making crops more resistant to sprays. Yes, killing bugs and weeds, and, and that, that's the interesting thing, right? That's what they were originally engineered to do. And the way they sold that to farmers was farming's going to be a lot easier. You just plant the crop, you spray it a couple times, you don't have to do any weeding. And oh, by the way, we think you're going to have higher yields because you won't have to deal with you know pests and you won't have to deal with weeds kind of impacting your yields. The funny thing about that, though, is that when you tell farmer one farmer that he can increase his yields, he's thinking, oh, that's great. Then I'll make more money you know, growing more bushels on the same land that I own. But if you sell that idea to every farmer, what happens to the commodity price, right? There's a, there's a, a glut of that crop and the price um, declines. So we often say once farmers get on this treadmill, it's just that. It's a treadmill where they have to either buy more land to grow more or they have to spray more. Um, and, and at the end of the day, what we're most concerned about is the impact that it, that has on soil, the impact that it has on biodiversity. Um, you're literally killing anything that isn't that one uh, commodity row crop like corn or soy. And, um, and those are really serious concerns. And, and we like to say that um, in a lot of ways, GMOs are not one thing. They're actually this whole system. And that system um, is a form of industrial agriculture that's really damaging to the environment. And ultimately, we think damaging to people and to water quality and, and the rest of it. There, you know, there are some estimates that the decline in the health of our soil, um, the, the, the earth that we grow our food in, um, the nutrient level in that soil has gone down dramatically over time. And um, where do plants get their nutrients? They get it from the soil that they're grown in. And so at the same time, you're seeing um, what we in the industry call nutrient density in really good wholesome foods has actually declined over time. There are studies that show that the same head of broccoli that you buy today is about 50% less nutritious than it was 50, 60 years ago. So do GMOs make soil less nutrient dense? 
Yes, uh, and part of that is just, again, it's a part of a whole system of farm management. So one crop at one point isn't necessarily going to um, show a decline in, in, in nutrient density, but there's a good chance that it might because what you're doing, if you're killing uh, hedgerows and you're killing weeds, what you're actually doing is you're, you're removing um, nature's way of bringing nutrients back into the ground. So uh, one of the other developments that we've seen now is a rising interest in what's called cover cropping and rotational cropping, right? And everybody who ever took a course, you know, a, a earth science course and learned about Booker T. Washington and some of the pioneers of, of modern agriculture recognize that you can't grow corn in the same field over and over and over and over again and expect the soil to stay healthy. So just the simple idea of rotating your crops this year, it's uh, the farm I grew up on, you know, one field would be corn one summer, and the next summer it would be oats, so the year after that it would be alfalfa. And that's nature's way of sort of rebuilding the soil because each of those plants might take something from the soil, but some, but other plants, you know, are going to sink, for example, nitrogen in the soil. Nitrogen is a really important element in soil, and what happens in the GMO farming um, scenario is you have to add, you know, what we call synthetic amendments to the soil. That's why you see fertilize, synthetic fertilizer going into farm fields in the spring they're, because they're trying to rebuild the nutrients in the soil. It's not so much about rebuilding the new, the, a, a full spectrum of nutrients in the soil. It's about the one nutrient that the soil needs in order to continue to grow corn in that same field. So it's this whole system of managing um, managing farmland almost in opposition to what nature wants to do, mm -hmm. and 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 trying to you know maximize yields on the same plot of ground regardless of what the cost might be to soil health. So what you're saying is that there's the GMO way of farming that promises higher yields, more disease resistant crops, and then there's a different way over here that's maybe a little bit harder, but it avoids the use of some of these chemicals or adaptations that don't occur naturally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's really, you know, how do we define better? What's a better system, right? And from a farmer's perspective, you know, maybe maximizing yields is, is a better system, or I want to be able to watch the soap operas in the afternoon. I don't want to be pulling weeds in my fields. Um, so, it depends on how you define better, but but we really believe that more and more people are recognizing that um, industrial agriculture actually um, externalizes a lot of the costs. So we everybody wants access to good quality food at an affordable price, and it's, this is the other thing that's kind of going on in the industry is we want to maximize yields in order to um, absolutely make food as afford affordable as possible to more people. And, and no, one want, no one's going to argue with that, like good food should be affordable to all people. Um, but then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is an appropriate price? Are we actually paying enough for quality food if, in fact, we're also paying with our health, with food that's less nutritious? Are we paying with our water quality because we have these huge monocrop fields where, you know, um, synthetic soil amendments are running right off the field into the water, and we don't have hedgerows that are filtering that that out. So there is a lot of conversation in our industry about what we call the true cost of food. 
And there's a, the larger sort of economic uh, rubric is true cost accounting. And that's taking into account everything that agriculture touches today. It would include, what about the gas that goes into the tractor that goes into the field? And how many miles are we putting out? How, what are the greenhouse gas effects that are being released from that method? What are the greenhouse gas effects of this synthetic nitrogen that really relies on the heavy, heavy use of, of um, petroleum, particularly natural gas, to produce that synthetic nitrogen as a fertilizer? So true cost accounting, true cost of food is something that we look at a lot. And, and it, it is certainly true that organic food costs more than conventional food, that non-GMO food can cost more than, than conventional food. But then you ask yourself, you know, what's, what's the true cost of eating really cheap food? And again, I, like I say, every, and what's the cost of your own personal health for eating a lot of empty calories uh, or exposure to toxic chemicals that might... Um, be coming through, you know, conventionally grown grown food. The other beautiful thing about organic and non-GMO, the upside is, if you've got really cheap conventional food, um, those farmers aren't getting paid very much, and we all recognize that, you know, family farming is is um, quickly is becoming a, an extinct thing as we have these bigger and bigger and bigger sort of industrial what we call factory farms, and it's really hard to make a living. Um, as a as a farm as a family farmer anymore, but the the um, the the silver lining in the, in those dark clouds really is the organic and non-GMO industry because it costs a little bit more, and you've got consumers willing to pay that little bit more for for better food. A lot of that pay price actually goes back to the farmer, and they 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 get more for producing organic in non-GMO um, produce than, than they do unconventional. And, and so organic and non-GMO have really been a bright light for small family farms like the one that I grew up on in Wisconsin. Yeah, I love that. I mean, this is not a simple conversation. It's quite nuanced. So you mentioned a few times organic and then non-GMO. There's also natural. I, I mean, there's so many different labels that you can find when you're at the grocery store. Can you talk about the difference between those? Yeah, it really depends on a claim-to-claim claim basis. And I, and I want to be clear, organic in particular, that's actually a federal program. It's called the, Natural, the National Organic Program that's really operated um, and owned by the USDA. And um, so it's a standard that's set at the federal level. And it's actually illegal to call a food organic if it isn't actually certified as being organic. And, and the way they operate that is they've got, um, you know, organic certifiers. You might have heard of some of them, whether it's Oregon Tilth or uh, maybe CCOF, which is California, um, California Certified Organic Farmers is what that stands for. Sometimes you'll see that label on on a package of food that indicates who the certifier is. But the federal government actually owns that standard. It says what things can be used to grow organically, what things can't be used, what are the expectations. And then those farmers actually, you know, they have certifiers on their farm checking it out and making sure that, that everything's on the up and up. Um, so organic is unique in that it is a federal program. It's illegal to claim a product is organic if it's not. And uh, it actually has to be the ingredients of those products have to be 95% or more organic in order to carry the little shield that you see, a little circle of what looks like a green field with USDA organic on it. Um, so, uh, and, and the federal government, it does go after, you know, folks that are making that claim um, 
uh, fraudulently. So non-GMOs is, is different um, than organic in the sense that um, we at the non-GMO project own the standard. In other words, um, we define what is non-GMO relative to our standard. So we're careful to say that products aren't GMO free. They have simply met the non-GMO project standard. And um, standards are sort of like speed limits. If your speed limit is either zero or it's unlimited, no speed limit at all, that's no speed limit at all, right? It's not legally enforceable one way or the other. Um, I remember a few years ago, um, 10, 15 years ago, Montana tried to pass a law to eliminate all speed limits on the interstates. And they tried it for a little while, and then they realized that was completely untenable because a whole host of other laws they couldn't enforce with some kind of a speed limit, like reckless driving. How do you define reckless driving if you don't have if you don't have a, an actual speed limit. So they ended up settling on whatever it is, 80 miles an hour. Similar with the food industry and setting these kinds of standards where you, you first you define what it is, then you say what's allowed, what's not allowed. Um, and that's one major difference between organic and non-GMO. Organic is supposed to be non-GMO. In theory, it says right in the federal standard, GMOs are not allowed. The problem with the USDA organic standard is that it doesn't actually define what GMOs are. It doesn't set any limits or thresholds, and it doesn't have any enforcement mechanism for saying, oh, well, if you've got this percentage of GMOs in, in your product, um, uh, then, then you're no longer organic, which is fine in theory, right? Except that on top of all that, um, the National Organic Program doesn't require testing so you might not know whether your organic cornflakes are in fact non-GMO. It's just sort of an article it's of faith. And that's uh, um, the other thing that I wanted to say is um, all of these labels, uh, you know, we in the industry call them third-party certification marks, certifiers. It's really an effort um, to create transparency in the food system. As I said at the beginning of our talk, brands that come into our program it really is a naked moment where they have to show us, you know, what's what their ingredient list is, what goes into the formulation on this, and not everybody's comfortable parading around naked in front of strangers, right? So um, that that's in contrast to a term like natural, which you could, be, you know, natural is a term anybody can use. Um, or organic technically is like everything's made out of carbon, right? I hear this argument all the time. Um, so. Uh, those are what we call self-made claims. So you go to the grocery store and you see all kinds of claims on package, whether it's sugar-free or low-fat or gluten-free. or So those of us who work in the certification business, we're in the business of kind of holding, holding businesses, um, keeping them honest about what their claims are. And it's not cheap for them to go through that. It's so much easier to just say on your package, yeah, we're a non-GMO. If you want, you know, the non-GMO project butterfly on your product, then you have to submit for that kind of scrutiny of your ingredients, in some cases testing, and, and that can get expensive for the brand to go ahead and do it. So um, we, do, we do acknowledge that, that um, it's an uncomfortable moment of nakedness, and on top of that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little bit of an investment on the part of a brand. Um, just as it's an investment for, for um, you know, shoppers at the store recognizing that organic and non-GMO food and similar foods are, are going to be slightly more expensive than their conventional counterparts.
So the non-GMO project is based in Bellingham. Why Bellingham? That's a great story. Well, I'm grateful that's here because I love Bellingham. And as I mentioned before, um, before we started recording, I moved um, to Bellingham from the Midwest. And it's, I think it's probably a well-known secret that everybody in Minnesota loves, uh, you know, the three things about Washington that Minnesotans love. Um, that we, well, there's two things that we don't, that we do have that we love about here, and that's um, passive aggressive people and a lot of water. And then the one thing that we really love that we don't have is the mountains. So, <laughs> so anyway, I'm one of those uh, Midwesterners who um, was lucky enough to get to move uh, to the Pacific Northwest. And I really think Bellingham's the, the jam of the Pacific Northwest. Hopefully, hopefully you don't have 10 million listeners in California who now want to move here. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're coming here anyway, right? So, um, no, but I, I love Bellingham. But the story of why we're here is actually our founder, Megan Westgate. Um, she, she really started the project single-handedly. She was living um, in Arizona and working in California, and she met a beautiful man. Um, who happened to be from Bellingham, several generations here, owned farmstead property uh, out in the county. And um, when they decided to settle down and, and have a family, they decided to come back to Bellingham. And she really built the business here. I, I think when she um, moved the project here, she, she was still the single employee. I might be wrong about that. But um, she it's a nonprofit that she started herself. We had a uh, an amazing board of directors that kind of helped her get it off the ground. But she was employee number one and the only employee um, for the, probably the first three, four, five years getting it off the ground. And, and this is where she wanted to start a family. So we've been lucky to um, have the, the mostly the, the amazing staff that we have, you know, are from the area. Now we're a large enough organization that people are coming here from all over the country to work um, with us. and. And discover the the beauty and the and the joy of, of beautiful Bellingham and and northwestern Washington. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. We really appreciate it. Um, if someone wanted to know more about the non-GMO project, how might they go about doing that? You can just look us up with everyone else on the web. So we're at nongmoproject.org. Excellent. Thanks again, Hans. You got it. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for listening to Neighbor to Neighbor, a community-driven conversation highlighting individuals and organizations making an impact in our community. Neighbor to Neighbor is produced by WeQ. Unless specifically stated otherwise, WeQ does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement.